Hi, it's Marianne. In this episode, Renee Harmon, MD, author of Surfing the Waves of Alzheimer's, shares her story of caring for her husband, Harvey, who had younger onset Alzheimer's. This is the second in our 2022 summer book series with HFC, recorded on July 12th and moderated by Christy Byrne Yates. We discuss the importance of acknowledging your vulnerability while caregiving, asking for and accepting help, why a good support group can make all the difference, and how to rewrite your script when dementia enters your story. Welcome to the All's Authors Podcast. We're so glad you found us. I'm Marianne Shuko, a registered nurse, author, and dementia daughter. Join me each week to listen to one of our authors talk about their dementia journey, sharing intimate details and painfully obtained knowledge to help others currently on that path. We hope these stories offer you comfort and support as we strive to break the silence and stigma surrounding a dementia diagnosis. May one of our authors speak to your experience. This is the Whole Care Network. Helping you tell your story one podcast at a time. Content presented in the following podcast is for information purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and guest and may not represent the views and opinions of the Whole Care Network. Always consult with your physician for any medical advice, and always consult with your attorney for any legal advice. And thank you for listening to the Whole Care Network. Are you on a dementia journey with a difficult person? If so, you won't want to miss our next virtual Q&A, Dementia with Difficult People, featuring four authors who have cared for a parent with whom they've had a turbulent relationship, or tangled with siblings in denial or otherwise unhelpful, or both. It happens November 8th at 2 p.m. Eastern. For more info and to save your seat, visit our website at allsauthors.com. Welcome to our book series um, sponsored by HFC and Al's Authors. Um, my name is Christy Yates, and I'm just going to be moderating a conversation with our author of the day, Renee Harmon, um, MD. And I want to give her a little chance to tell us a little bit about herself. Uh, but her book is called um, Surfing the Waves of Alzheimer's. And I've I don't have this tagline on it. It's the practicing the principles, um, principles of caregiving that kept oh. me upright. Oh, that's right. That kept me upright. I can't tell you how much that rings true for for so many of us. Because, and I love the metaphor of surfing the waves. So, anyway, welcome. Dr. Renee, I'm so glad you're here with us. And um, I know you're now a retired uh, family practitioner. And uh, I think you're still living in Alabama, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Alabama. Mm -hmm. That's right. So um, 
I want to introduce you to the group. We are just going to spend a little time talking about your book, um, but I do want to share that this is a, a just a heart-wrenching story, but you tell it with such um, beauty and wisdom. Really, that's the word that comes to me. There's just a lot of wisdom, and I appreciated that you shared so many principles at the end of each chapter, things that really helped you and that could really help others. And this is a unique piece of it, right? Early onset Alzheimer's. It's a smaller portion of people that are, are afflicted with this and it can be really difficult and you share a lot of that. Um, it was very eye-opening to me. So I appreciated so much that you shared with us. So I just wanna say welcome and let you say a few words about yourself and then we'll kind of jump into some questions. All right, well, sure. Um... So I'm Dr. Renee Harmon. I'm a family practitioner that just recently retired. Actually, I retired just before COVID hit. Oh. Who knew? Yeah. But um, that was fortuitous. Um, I don't think I could have retired in the midst of, of COVID. That right. I would have felt too guilty about that. But um, I was in private practice with my husband. We shared a practice, Harvey, uh, for since 1992. I can't do the math right that quickly, but um, we shared a practice until he was forced to retire when he had the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We have two daughters. Um, I, we have uh, Elena, the oldest, and Christina, and they were 14 and 17 years old when their dad was diagnosed. So Harvey was 50 when wow. he was diagnosed. So we had this yeah. shared practice, family practice, um, that just became my sole solo practice. Yeah. As the same time I became the primary parent to the two daughters and right. caregiver, care partner to Harvey. And he lived with Alzheimer's disease for eight years. Mm -hmm. He was home alone for four. And then I had in-home care for two years. And when that became too difficult, I, he was placed in memory care units. He was actually in three different memory care facilities and had five different um, geriatric psych admissions. So, and he, he passed away 2018. So it's been two and a half years. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And, and you, as I said, um your story you tell your story so well and it it's full of such wisdom so i want to ask also then kind of jumping into it um share with us a little bit about why you decided to write your book and your maybe your process there yeah so i actually started writing the book soon after harvey passed away and i i don't know what i was telling myself but now looking back it was obviously a big project, something to fill that void that had been left after all the caregiving. Um, but I, I had journaled the entire eight years that Harvey was ill. So I had six full notebooks and all these stories and a wealth of information that I felt I could share. And I've always thought that I wanted to write a book, but I never had a story, but I had a story. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you did. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about journaling. And that was definitely something that comes through in the book about how um, important it was for you. It helped you maybe, I'm guessing, process a little bit along the way, but then certainly afterwards able to put some of the pieces together. But um, can you tell us a little bit about how you approach journaling and your journaling? And I mean, did you have a structure? Was it just sort of diary entries? How did it help you? And 
How did it serve to support you along the way? Well, I started journaling probably about, oh, two or three months after I first thought something was going on. And Mm -hmm. um, it was a place for me just to really write down what I was observing. Just, you know, I was in that phase kind of denial. Is this real? Is this not? Okay, no, this happened. This happened. So it started off that way. And as, as we got closer to the diagnosis, I knew this was happening. It was a mainly it was a place for me to vent and to pour out everything I was feeling in a safe way. I couldn't do that with Harvey. He was already going through so much on his own. I didn't need to tell him (laughs) what I was experiencing. So it was a place for me just to get angry and to get sad and to say everything I needed to say and get out of my body. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I used that and I used and, and and then and it was very helpful seeing physicians to have like a chronology of what had happened too. So that that was helpful. But this then yes, yeah. And I, and I was I was thinking, gosh, it's almost like case notes, right? Like you were writing some case notes. But I also imagine, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Like you said, you couldn't really share this with your partner because he was the person who was who you were working for with or um, Mm -hmm. supporting Um, and then your daughters are teenagers and it would be a little hard to you know as a parent put that much on them and even though they did a lot to support their dad um, that certainly wasn't the place so I can see how journaling could be really supportive so that's great and I did have close family and friends that I could share with eventually it you know took me a while to yeah but yeah sure and then I had these six journals that were the um, backbone for the book. All the stories are in that journal. In wow. Those wow. That's priceless, really. That's priceless. Um, and, uh, you know, as a physician, you know, you had a particular level of knowledge already about dementia, certainly as a physician. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about other sources or resources that helped you to understand more about the diagnosis and the disease? And you you kind of touched on, you know, there's a part of you at one point that was a little maybe in denial about it, but then maybe what sort of things helped you get past that and support you in your growing knowledge about it to be able to help Harvey? Yeah, that was absolutely yeah. part of it as I was trying to decide is this real or not, looking up. I, on the internet, anything I could find and, and just would look at just your usual sources. Um, but I really found it helpful to look at videos of real people in various stages and, and see their interactions with their, with their caregivers, with their loved ones. And I'll, I'll never forget one particular interview of a couple. I think they were younger and the man had Alzheimer's and the, the woman was answering all the interview questions and he was just kind of silently nodding. And so the interviewer asked him, um, so what does your wife do to help you? And he just kind of said everything. And I thought, That's, this is it. This wow. is what it's going to be like. Sure. So that was really helpful. And then I found a couple of memoirs and, and that was another reason I wanted to write a book because I couldn't find a memoir about younger onset. Um, right. But memoirs were also really helpful to put a real face, a real story rather than textbook things. 
Sure. I think the other thing that I would want to mention that was very helpful to me was a website, alzinfo.com. It's the Fisher Alzheimer's Research. They It, yeah. it was very helpful to me because I had a, a detailed um, uh, staging system, the seven stage and yes. very detailed information and substaging. And it was it was really helpful for me to see where Harvey was, um, right. how long each of these stages and sub-stages lasted. That was very, very helpful. Yeah. Did you ever feel at times, uh, I'm going, I'm kind of taking off on this in another way. Did you ever feel, you know, because you're a physician and you know a lot more maybe than the layperson about a lot of these things, was it ever, um, I don't know, more challenge. Do you feel like it was more challenging for you at times to kind of see what was coming? Like more fright. I, I don't know. I wonder if it would be yeah. more frightening to know more about what's yeah, coming. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know. I don't think huh. so. I, okay. I think I was um, felt it's probably hard to say, <laughs> kind of knowing what yeah. to expect. Okay, I think yeah. I, I think it. Oh, it was it was easier that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing I alluded to in the beginning is you integrated into each chapter some practices which i thought were really wonderful um and you include them at the end of each chapter and i wanted to ask are these practices that you actually used yourself um and which ones did you use and how did you determine to develop those yeah so let me first off say that the um, book is organized with the chapters are titled caregiving principles like it's better to be kind right. than correct. And then each chapter illustrates those stories with story and then discusses the principle and then has the practices. Yes, so yes. It's just a good way to organize the book. And even though it's chronologic. Um, but yeah, there are there were several of the practices that I did use. The most obvious was is just reframing the situation from your loved one's point of view. So the story in the book is a long, complicated story about Harvey and his father who had dementia um, going to spring his mother, who also had dementia, out of the nursing home. Right. And it felt like he was making my life so miserable because he would understand what I was saying. She can't come home, Harvey. But then his father would say, we need to go get her. And she would beg. And he just kept saying yes to everybody. And when I just stood, stepped back and looked at it from his point of view, he just wanted to please yes. he me. He loved his parents. He wanted to do right what they wanted him to do. And yeah. so I do. That's one of the practices I, I think is very helpful. And um, just actually rewriting the story, it's something that happened in present tense, okay, this this is happening right now. And then rewriting the story in third person, in the mm -hmm. voice of the person right. with Alzheimer's, rewriting the story from their point of view. Right, right. So powerful. Very powerful. And I can even see how in many ways we could do that even without some, for someone who doesn't have dementia, maybe someone who were like, what are they thinking? And then we stop and think, what would oh. they think? What would they be thinking? Yeah. So helpful. But I like that the reframing of it. And and I remember that story. And it was just, um, and yeah, it, it also even speaks to how um, vulnerable 
our um, family members with dementia, Alzheimer's are because they can be sort of co-opted into oh, yeah. so many different things and behaviors. And his parents didn't know that's what no, they were doing. No, you know? of course not. They had dementia they as had well, this. and it was really hard. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> very complicated. I could see how that would be very difficult for you on the other side, trying to unravel everything. Um, so are there any of those practices that you continue to use for any other reason? Well, I, I use them when I speak sometimes yeah. or when I present a workshop, I get the participants to do some of them. Um, I still journal. Yes. Um, and then when I when I wrote the book, I realized that all the most of the practices that I was coming up with were journal prompts yeah. because I'm a journaler. And, oh, and I yeah. realized not everybody journals, not everybody likes to write. And I um, elicited the help of a friend, my friend Hannah, who's a school psychologist who knows that not all people are learners in, in one way. So she right. helped come up with some of the other practices that were maybe more tangible, like right. um, write a note on a sticky note that says, be kind and put it on your mirror just to see it every day. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah. That was great. Um, you had some really tough times. Um, what were some of the strategies or practices that kept you going and helped you to surf? Because you really, I, I'm even thinking about the story you just told, but also later on when Harvey was really having a challenging time in residence and had to, as you said, he had three different psychiatric placements and you had a lot to contend with. Um, so when things were really tough, what were some strategies or practices that really helped you to surf? Well, when it was really tough like that mm -hmm. in those last years, our daughters were older then, and right. we really did lean on each other a mm -hmm. lot, mm -hmm. as well as my friends and two close friends were always available to, for me to call and, and talk through a situation. Um, but turn that off. Sorry. Um, I think the more, um, not interesting, what kept me afloat during those middle stages that I really want people to try to work on too is, um, continuing to do the things that bring you joy. Yeah. Yes. And if you have to adapt them. Um, and I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but I did. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You sure I did. Couldn't just stop reading books. Um, right. Started listening in to audiobooks on the way right. to from work. And um, I started playing, I played the piano. So, and Harvey didn't particularly care for classical music, but I would, I bought a big book of 70s music and we would play sing Billy Joel and Elton John songs. So, yeah, just adapted. I, I learned how to um, knit and uh -huh. by watching YouTube videos. And I would just sit and do that while we were together. That was so great. Yeah. Finding ways to keep doing what you, yeah. And, and it seemed to me like you really built a team around you too, because one story that speaks to that adaptation that you did was um, how at church you played, um, you were right. in the choir, you played, and Harvey needed someone to sort of help him because he might not be able to be there the whole time during practice. And so you had different people that walked him around and, and sort of took care of him while you were doing what was feeding your soul at that time and giving you an outlet. So 
Um, maybe you can speak to a little bit of how did you build your team up with friends yeah. and family and, and resources? Well, I think that the key to that for me was being vulnerable and being willing to share Yeah, and not feel like you had to keep it a secret. Yeah. Um, it took about a year after Harvey's diagnosis before we, I really started telling people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more people knew, the better and easier it was just to share what was going on at home. And then they would oftentimes, they would be the ones, our friends would be the ones who would just offer. So yeah. your example with the the praise band, I just told my friend, Bill, I, I think I'm going to have to stop playing because Harvey's wandering mm-hmm. during rehearsal. And he said, no, no, I'll, I'll just be with Harvey during that yeah. time. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even, <laughs> didn't think of that. So I think right. that was the key is just being vulnerable and sharing what's going on. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, I want to say that was another thing that stood out for me in your story was uh, the people who walked with him because he'd been a runner. Your, your Harvey was a marathoner and he couldn't do that anymore, but he liked to be active. So you were at the practice all day and you had people walking with him and the were dogs. And then you had people cooking with them. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you built that. I'm totally going off the script that we had about different questions we were going to ask, but you know what, Renee, it just sounds like it would fit in so well. I love what you're saying about Mm -hmm. being able to share this because caregivers need a village, right? To support one another. So um, it it sounded like it kind of came together very organically, but how, how did that impact you, your life, your daughters, and and Harvey having so many people willing to come in and and share in this? Oh, it was huge. I mean, I I already had a community. I I knew I had a community. I didn't realize that I could be as vulnerable as I was, but it was such a difficult time. I I had to share it, you know, Um, but they rallied. I mean, this community I had rallied. And I know not everybody has a community like that. And not everybody is comfortable asking for help from their community or accepting help from their community. I was just blown away and overwhelmed um, with it. And it it made me feel supported. And I, even people who didn't offer physical help, even though they knew, I knew they knew, I feel their support, you know, that invisible support like roots in a, in a, of a tree in a forest that just ground you and know that you're protected. It, it can't say, I can't say more about that. That's just, yeah. It, it, so true. And I, 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 I totally get what you're saying. It, it is hard if you're, I mean, it's clear from the, your very introduction in your, in your book, uh, what a high achiever you are as an individual. You even talk about this. You have so many varied interests and you, and so it's hard for high achievers and, and just people who've kind of been doing their own thing, right. To start asking for help. It's a, it's a real, like, and it is that vulnerability. So mm-hmm. did it get easier reaching absolutely, out? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned the neighbors that walk dogs with Harvey. They actually offered, they noticed that Harvey wasn't walking. So these two neighbors offered to walk dogs. Well, one day Harvey wandered early in the morning and I called one of these walkers and said, Hey, I, I need you to see if you can 
drive around the neighborhood and and see if you can yeah. find it. Yeah, be on the lookout. <laughs> look out. Yeah, the more people oh know, the safer your loved one is too. I think. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I alluded to this earlier. Also, you were a sandwich generation parent. You had someone you were taking care of, and you had two daughters you were raising. They were teenagers at the time. I think you said fourteen and seventeen when Harvey was diagnosed. Um, how did this time period? with Harvey impact their lives? I, I can't overstate how much of an impact yeah. it had on three of us, right? Yeah. But the older one was 17. She was entering her senior year of college. So yeah. it, I mean, senior year of high school, high sorry. School, yeah. So it absolutely impacted her decision about college. She had always known she wanted to go out of state for college, but she really had to wrestle with that. Is that the right thing to do? Right. He, you know, he, it was his first year. He wasn't that bad off. Yeah. And I, I encouraged her to do what she really wanted to do. And she eventually gave herself permission to go out of state for college. And she yeah. had the complete college um, uh, experience. Yeah. While she was away, she did decide to seek counseling on her own by the school counselor there. Excellent. And and I know because of all of that, she chose to go into social work. She's a wow. social worker. Yeah. yeah. I know that played a role, but it truly impacted our younger daughter yeah. very greatly. So she was 14. She was entering her yeah. freshman year. She didn't know what Alzheimer's disease was. Right. She had never heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah. But in that freshman year, she had to take a health class and they were doing like a disease of the week kind of thing. And somebody was presenting about Alzheimer's disease one day. And I think the teacher asked, you know, raise your hand if you know somebody with Alzheimer's and uh, all kids were sharing silly stories about silly grandma and the funny yeah. things she did. And she just had to sit and listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> But she ended up, she was very helpful to me and her father mm -hmm, during the yeah. three years that she was home. She was his right hand gal for anything technological. And she helped cook dinner some. She would guide him. She was late to school one day when he asked her to, um, if he could follow her to the gym. And it was very close by both the high school and our gym and the and the house. And she was late to school because she said yes. Um, yeah. And then she also had to struggle with where does she go to college? And she chose yeah. to stay in town. Uh-huh. Okay. And, yeah. In town. And she, oh my goodness, this, this crap, this just breaks my heart when I really, not breaks my heart, but brings tears to my eyes to think yeah. about. When she was 16, she was invited to be a counselor at a camp for special needs adults. Yeah. Because she had been working with her dad for two years, she thought, yeah, okay, I can do that. And it was with friends who had told her that it was a good experience. So she went and loved it. And she yeah. has been a counselor at that camp for 10 years. Oh, straight. my. And she is now a special ed teacher. Oh. All because of this. And yeah. on top of that, she met her now husband at that first camp. He was also a counselor at that yeah. camp. Yeah. I mean. Her whole life trajectory was, sure. was impacted by this. And she yeah. also saw counseling on her own right. in college. Yeah, yeah. And I, 
I so appreciate you sharing this with us because I think sometimes there's a tendency to want to protect our kids and keep them far away from anything that might feel painful. And yet you're, you're speaking to the level of compassion and, um, you know, life purpose that can come from this too. Not that, I mean, by no means would I ever suggest that, Hey, you know, if you've lived through this, then this is your career path, but just the level of compassion. I always, I always say empathy, um, in action is compassion, right? So when we, we all have the capacity for some empathy, but when we put it in practice in small ways, big ways, that's really what compassion is. And that's a, that's a skill set and a practice that feeds us too. So what a beautiful way to talk about that. Um, and before we get off your daughters, um, can you tell me or tell us a little bit about how you shared the book with your daughters and how they feel about the book that you wrote? Have they read it? Are they yeah. big fans? No, I didn't. Um, they knew I was writing the book. Yeah. I, I, they didn't express any trepidation about that and I had them read the final copy well yeah the near final copy and they both made some changes and uh one in particular went through with a fine tooth comb and was offering her proofreading skills (laughs) and um, another thing that they taught me because they are both in the fields that they're in and I changed I began to use person first right uh, information yeah. instead of saying the dementia patient is right with dementia so yeah they taught me a lot and they corrected a few things that they thought that they had a different memory about and mm-hmm. and I, I changed a few things um based on on, on that and yeah. got their approval for for changes but they're they're really mostly proud of of the book and sure proud that I, we're touching lives yeah, well, that's 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 wonderful. Um, so this would be a really good place for us to pause a little bit and have you read a passage a passage for us, and then maybe anybody who's here joining us, if you had any immediate questions, we can do some Q and A now. And then I I do have some more um, questions for you, but I would love for you to read a passage for us. Okay. Well, let me first show. You, this is the book, and I guess it's already been shown on the uh, social media. But um, what I'd like to read is in the chapter, um, it's okay to accept and ask for help. And you alluded to this particular one, which we haven't talked about it yet, the uh, cooking with Harvey, right? So one memorable black beans and rice was very interesting. I've always prided myself on my ability to detect flavors in a dish. So I put my skill to the test with this black beans and rice he had prepared. The original recipe called for black beans and a sauce of honey, mustard, olive oil, and cumin. I could detect none of that. And when I asked Harvey what he had used, he could only answer, oh, this and that. I saw tiny bits of tomato or red pepper. Ah, that was salsa. But there was something else. I went to the refrigerator to see if I could get a clue. There it was. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Black beans in salsa and Worcestershire sauce. Ugh. Not inedible. So I ate it and praised his creativity. Another of his favorite recipes was tomato pesto, a simple dish requiring no heat to prepare except for the pasta. 
use tomato paste, basil, olive oil, Parmesan cheese, and garlic. When I, when I suggested this recipe for dinner, he served unseasoned hot tomato paste over spaghetti needles. I decided to take over the cooking after he served shrimp and grits. This was one of our all-time favorite recipes. Shrimp sauteed in canned Italian tomatoes and bacon over grits made yummier with milk, butter, and cream cheese. Well, I asked for shrimp and grits, and that's what I got. Shrimp, still in their shells, stirred into a pot of plain grits. I was simultaneously giggling and cursing as I fished out the shrimp from their grits bath and tried to peel them. What a mess. <laughs> Once I took over the cooking, I had a variety of options to choose from. If there was a particular dish I wanted and I was longing for some of my favorite dishes that were on my repertoire, I would ask Harvey to help me, giving him tasks like chopping and stirring. I would also pick up dinner from a restaurant on my way home or pick up a prepared dish that only needed to be heated up. Then I had an idea to hire a chef to come to the house and cook with Harvey, providing companionship and giving him a purpose and a way to contribute to our household. Mm -hmm. It would need to be the right person, though, so preferably someone who knew us and could relate to Harvey. When I told our friend Nancy about this idea to hire a chef, she said that she would do it. Now, Nancy would be the first to tell you that she is no chef. She doesn't really even cook. So I was surprised at her offer and asked her to explain what she envisioned this would look like. She said that I shouldn't worry about it. She would just come and cook with Harvey once a week. And that's all I needed to know. What she did was show up every week with recipes and she and Harvey would go to the grocery store and shop and then come back and indeed cook with Harvey. She also brought along a blank spiral bound scrapbook in which she placed copies of the recipes, the menu and notes about their adventures that day. That scrapbook is one of my treasures. Nancy even recruited another friend, Jill, a renowned cook who once studied in France to cook with Harvey. And Jill showed up twice a month, also with a bag of groceries and recipes, which she added to the scrapbook. And she and Harvey would create marvelous meals together. His main jobs were to open cans. We have a rather unique can opener that no one but members of our family can open. Chop vegetables and stir. Jill credits Harvey to this day with enhancing her original ice cream dessert recipe by adding copious amounts of chocolate syrup. Both Nancy and Jill continued their cooking sessions for a year and a half, finally stopping when Jill said that Harvey could no longer stir. I didn't know what she meant. How could he not know how to stir? She said that he couldn't incorporate with his stirring and would instead just lightly rotate the spoon on the top of the sauce. When I told other friends about the amazing things that Nancy and Jill were doing, uh, another friend, Hillary, offered to coordinate some meals to be brought to us using an app that allowed people to sign up and sending it to our shared friends email list. She was able to have at least one other meal per week delivered to us. It was amazing. Wow, that's so beautiful. What a great community yeah. effort. And, um, so, you know, people want to give. That's That's the thing. We are always afraid to ask for help, but people love to be able to help and they don't always know how. So giving right. them something tangible is so wonderful. Well, in this story, it was just Nancy just saying, yeah, 
I'll do that. Right, right, oh, right. Well, and there's so much in that story too, even even the um, loss of skill that, yeah. that Harvey um, went through, the inability to, to understand their directions or the recipe to remember how to do something and then you know the loss of being able to stir so this is really sort of what we see and is so can be so heartbreaking so thank you for reading that i really appreciate it um so since uh, let me ask are there any questions from some of the folks that are here today was there anybody that had an immediate question about what we just heard so far i want to talk to renee a little bit about what's happening since then but if we have any questions i'd be happy to much in there. Okay. And if you have any at the end, for sure, we can do that then. Um, so Renee, can you talk to us a little, little bit about what has opened up for you since um, publishing the book and retiring? Like, what are you, what are you up to now? Um, well, I'll first say the first thing I did around Alzheimer's was actually tell our story at a storytelling event. I told the story of Costa Rica when I knew something was going on and because I really enjoy public speaking and I felt that maybe the book would be a vehicle for more speaking. And actually I was asked to speak about Alzheimer's um, about a year before I wrote the book and I organized it the way I organized the book. And, and that was kind of the impetus. Of, oh, okay. Okay. That's how I'm going to put it together. Yeah, yeah. So, so then I started blogging a weekly blog about a month before, I mean, a year, goodness, a year before the book was published. And I've continued to do that. Um, I continue to blog weekly. And um, it seems to be pivoting a little bit, not so much um, specifically about Alzheimer's, although there is always a tie-in. Um, but I'm, I'm it looks like I'm writing more about nature and the, um, the lessons that different aspects of nature are teaching me about caregiving, um, about living life. Um, and then I've, I've continued to speak. I am a, a volunteer community educator for the Alzheimer's Association. And I really enjoy doing that because um, yeah. I tell our story and then I give the presentation that they have for me to, to give. And I, I speak other places too, but I just, my Biggest opportunity was earlier in June, I did a, a, a one day workshop based yeah. on the book, um, using practices in the book, storytelling, um, I had 50, 50 participants. It was really well received and I would love to do more of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, and we do have a question. So um, how long did it take you to write the book? Um, and this person, this is, um, Arlen Barnett. And she says, how long did it take you to write the book? And she wrote a book about taking care of her mother with Alzheimer's and it took, took her about five years. So Renee, how about, how long did it take you? Five months. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I think all those journals really helped. I was going to say, I, you I had told them. the stories, been telling yeah. stories. And the first part of the book, the first, I would say, six years of his life were very easy to write because it felt like a love letter to all those people who had helped us, right? Yeah, yeah. But those last two years, that was tough to relive and right. write. I kind of drug my feet on that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I would imagine, and you've said this too, just those six journals just were so rich with details that you, that could easily have slipped away with just, I mean, yeah. my goodness, you're juggling everything. So yeah, that's, that's a lot. Um, I, took, um, I took a few writing retreats, just rented a little tiny house, Airbnb away on a weekend yeah. and uh, just to devote time to, to write. That's great. That's a really good, that's a really good strategy too. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit more about the early onset. Um, about five to 6% of people develop symptoms of Alzheimer's before age 65. Harvey was 50 years old um, and a very high functioning person in otherwise good health. What advice do you have for people who suspect a younger loved one has dementia? maybe speak to how they might approach that with the person or family members. Yeah, that, that's just so, so, so difficult. No one wants to have yeah. that conversation. Yeah. No one. Strike while the iron is hot. Um, I had that conversation with Harvey while we were in Costa Rica. I kind of enumerated a few things that I had seen and he agreed that he had seen the same thing. So it was right then I was able to say, I'm worried about you. And he was able to say, yeah, I saw it too. What do we need to do? Mm -hmm. And we went from there. Um, if, if we had not made that trip to Costa Rica, which took him out of his comfort zone, out of right. his routine and just, triggered his inability to keep up I don't know how long I would have right it would have taken for me yeah. to see, for me to see that because when you practice medicine together it's not like we were in the same exam rooms together I had no idea what was going on in his right exam. right so, but that's just my case um so it, it might be helpful to keep a list of the things that you've seen and with love and kindness and every bit of that you can muster say, Hey, I'm worried about you. This is what I've seen. Right. Otherwise they, they're going to feel ganged up on. Mm -hmm. you know, another yeah. thing you can do is if, if they've said something about their concerns about their memory or getting lost, you can, you can say, you know, you've been worried about, that time where you got lost, right. I'm going to, why don't we go to the doctor together and, and always offer to go with them. I don't ever send, I would not recommend sending someone alone to the doctor. The doctor right. really needs to hear from a close family member or friend, um, what they've observed. Um, they're not the most reliable narrators. I was going to say they're, <laughs> they're not a reliable narrator as you, as you put it. Absolutely. And, and, um, so important to lead with love. That's, that's yeah. a great way. Um, rather than a, Hey, you know, an accusatory kind of thing, or, a, right. um, you know, this, this, and this, yeah. let the record show there's this, this, you know, <laughs> it's more like, Hey, I'm worried. I'm concerned. How can I help? And that's a great, that's a great, great advice. Um, what, I would also say maybe you aren't the right person. So mm -hmm. think about who the best person Good point. to hear that from would be pick the best time of day, best yeah. time of year you know right do it at the middle of christmas holiday. i was just gonna say this is not thanksgiving dinner discussion yeah. <laughs> yeah um absolutely so being thinking about it so that brings up sort of the whole notion of being intentional and what's your intention um and 
you know, it's not a legal argument you're presenting to somebody. It's a, it's a, I'm, I'm concerned and how are you going to do it? So for sure, how are they going to receive it? So, um, uh, yeah. Um, and I also spoke to this a little bit earlier too. You're a high performer. You've done so many things and you have so many accomplishments. Um, and I did ask you already, um, like asking for help in writing the book, other than your daughters helping you, did you have any outside sources kind of helping you, um, like putting this together and getting it published and how you did all that specifically with the book? Yes. I, um, or other things too, but yeah, yeah, it is self-published. Um, Uh and I hired a company to help me because I really wanted it to be a product. I wanted it to look like a real book and not a self-published book. Like anyway, so, um, they were, I had an editor, yeah. you know, multiple different editors, sure. and a book designer to design the interior and a cover design. And that worked, I worked really closely with, with this company, uh, Girl Friday Productions. There's a shout out right there. There you go. But I was also thinking um, help along the way. I cannot speak highly enough about support groups, right? Oh my gosh no one else understands what you're going through as well as a support group and a counselor. I had a counselor as soon as I knew this is what was going on and met with him uh, monthly for entirety of Harvey's illness. I I knew I needed that. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. Um, I forget, did you use hospice services or anything? I did. Um, I did. And, and, and it's actually something that I'm not proud of. I did not do it very well. So when I felt he qualified for hospice was when he was unable to walk anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was transferred to a skilled nursing floor away mm-hmm. from memory care. And I asked the nurse there if we could please get hospice. And she said that she didn't think it was appropriate because she thought he would hear that word hospice and give up. Mm-hmm. And I was so tired. I did not fight her. Mm, okay. And okay. it ended up being hospice. What I did not want just the last four days of his life. Got and that, it. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Here's a little aside. I, I've re- I wrote a blog post about that, about hospice. And I did yes. a YouTube video version of it. It has 14,000 views. Wow. That's yeah. so important. And how much people want to know about hospice and all right, right. And yes, life, yes. I had no idea. Yeah, no. I, people are hungry. Mm-hmm. We don't talk enough about this. We don't talk a lot about end of life. We don't talk about and and p- different people have different um, experiences with hospice. And you know, you were yeah. getting advice from a nurse who wasn't actually a hospice nurse, correct? Correct. Correct. And so, yeah, but you're exhausted at the same time. So knowing how to fight for what you need. And, and I know at the end, end of Harvey's life, you were just struggling. He was struggling. You were struggling with his struggle. Um, and it was very, um, you know, painful. And I'm sure that it just can feel like, you know, so just giving up makes sense to me. Like, I'm just kind of like, you know, and that, you know, then speaks to being able to advocate with the caregiving organizations, institutions that we, we need um, at times because um, this became too much for him at home and for you and for your daughters. And so, yeah, it's very, it's very challenging. Um, 
So you did, I did want to talk a little bit about, or have you speak to us a little bit about um, the, uh, you, you talked about the attitudes and therapeutic approaches to dementia and how they've shifted over the years, right? I mean, we're starting to, like you just said, you had what, 14,000 hits on this one thing. And we're just yeah. starting to talk about this more now. Like, you know, I'm in your world. I talk about this stuff all the time. So for me, it's like, you know, this is what I live and swim in, right? And and I know we have other people on on the call right now who are also in this world and live live it and talk about it and swim in it. But not everybody does. Um, and certainly years ago, it was just not spoken about. So we've had some many changes. And um, the one concept that you talk about is the concept of entering their world, um, entering the world of the person with dementia. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and how that felt for you? Sure, sure. So in medical school in the 1980s, we were taught to reorient the patient to reality. To, yeah. to tell them what day it was, what day of the week it was, and and to tell them the truth and to correct them when they were wrong. And that only creates anxiety and frustration on both parts, right? Right, right. They just can't. So the idea of entering into their world is just a process of rewriting the script. Again, looking at it from their point of view, their brains are dying. They yeah. cannot enter our world. They, they cannot live in the real world because they don't have the resources, the mental resources right. that we have. So if we can enter their world and interact with them where they are, that's the best approach. And where I really saw that happening yeah. was at respite care. And then the paid caregivers that I had just seamlessly, it seemed like, could just enter their world. And I realized it's because they didn't know him before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I think yeah. it's harder for us yeah. who've known our loved ones their whole lives or their adult lives to make that shift. Yeah. But I learned from them. I learned from those caregivers. Oh, that's what you mean. Right. So I started playing catch with Harvey mm -hmm. and building blocks and batting balloons and just playing with him as if he were a four-year-old without yeah. treating him like a four-year-old. Right. Entering his world, helping him do um, tasks around the house and not just taking them on myself, um, which would be the easier thing to do, <laughs> but just say, let's do it together and enter the world, his world that way, enter yeah. the world linguistically too. They can't, they couldn't keep up with this conversation. So right. Slow it down. Use simpler words. Right. Take longer pauses. That's their world, not this world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, um, uh, uh, sort of the way I think about that sometimes is, is the phrase, connection before correction, right? Like if we yeah. can connect before we correct, because the correcting, oh no, it's Tuesday is like, that's useless information, right? It's not <laughs> necessary. It's superfluous. It, wh why is that important? It's right. probably not. So yeah, um, somebody writes here, um, Teresa Liberte, uh, other than the professional counseling you mentioned that your daughter sought, were there any support groups or other resources that they found helpful as younger people? Thank you for sharing your story. So yeah, were there any things, I know you've you've kind of spoken to, they got counseling when they were away at college, but were there other kind of groups that they 
that you know of that they connected to or have since? I really didn't. There really wasn't nothing out yeah. there. Um, and our their counselors even were looking for books and groups for them as I was too. And we really just couldn't find anything. Yeah. Um, and they were very reluctant to share with friends. They really did not talk about it with their mm-hmm. friends. Like I did. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did that. And, uh, but they, they couldn't do that. And right. I, I think that might be changing now with um, with virtual support groups. Mm-hmm. I would have loved a virtual support group of spouses with younger onset. Yeah. Yes. That there are support groups for um, for children of younger onset. They did actually. Now that I'm saying that, they did find a Facebook group okay. uh, of uh, children of younger onset. Um, oh, I'm that's great! How helpful they found it, but it was there, and I was right. really mad that there yeah. is there. Um, And I'm just going to put in a shameless plug here. It's not shameless at all. Actually, it's a very proud plug for Al's authors, because there are a number of books written for children at different ages, younger kids, understanding what might be happening to grandma or grandpa, uh, for teens, for young adults. So there are, if you haven't yet um, found alsauthors.com, is it .com? Dot com. Thank you, Marianne. Um, Alsauthors.com. Yes. Over 300 um, authors. And Dr. Renee is one of them. And it, there's just s- such a rich array of books there that can support. Um, it can support you through understanding some very specific things. But then there are just wonderful stories for kids. And I have I have loved them and used them with, with folks as well. Um, but yeah, so... Um, Teresa, if you're looking for that, I would I would encourage you to look at alsauthors.com and find some of those authors. And then another resource might be your school um, counselors or school um, psychologists. Uh, I'm a retired school psychologist. I would have definitely tried to help people find what they needed for that or school social workers. There are a lot of people, I think, um, that are trying to do more of this. And I kids need to know because kids are impacted, you know, and you kind of talked about this, Renee, how one time your younger daughter missed a day of school because something was going, she was doing something with Harvey. And that's something that happens, right? Our kids get, um, they get sidetracked as well. Um, If their parent is busy with this other very, you know, serious situation, they may not finish a homework assignment or get, you know, they're just, they're battling too, trying to stay above the fray. And so for the school system to understand what they're going through is also important because from the teacher's perspective, they just see, oh, so-and-so's got her absence rates really gone up. What's going on? That's a conversation to have. So yeah, really important. Um, what else would you like caregivers and family members and those with Alzheimer's to know? Like, what do you think would be important? Well, I think just tagging in on what we've just been talking about, you're not alone. There, there are so many resources now. And um, if you're not in a support group, get in a support group for sure. Um, and with, like I said, with COVID and all these virtual support groups, you can find a support group that's tailored to your specific needs. I suspect Yeah, there is no need for anybody to feel alone. I, I get comments about that sometimes. Like I don't have friends like yours who have, who can help, but 
you you've got access to more than you know more than yeah. you know. there's a lot out there yeah you just have to ask and look and um you know, I want to just say, I remember specifically in your book, you talked about going to a support group. And one of the things you talked about was you were different than most of the people there in that you were dealing with your husband who was very young comparatively. And most of the other folks had were dealing with parents or older folks with um, Alzheimer's. And I, I want to raise that because um, a support group is there to get support. Um, it's not always to get every answer to everything. So if, yeah. so I just want to encourage folks, if you're looking for a support group and you're looking for everybody who's just like you, yeah. you, you're, you might not find that. You're going to find really a mixed bag of people. But support is there in that whatever you have to say, folks are there to hear it. And they're not, if it's well facilitated, there's no judgment, there's no inappropriate advice giving it's just a place to be and people can hear you people can hear you talk about how hard it is to have to do x y or z and the frustration the, and you're not judged on i'm angry today it's this is where you are you know did you find that i just want to ask if that's how you found it absolutely christy i didn't mean to say that only yeah only a support group that is tailored to your specific needs it, it my support group was very supportive. Yeah. Um, yes. And it's the same disease. Um, we, yeah. we said it before it, it presents the same way. There's some differences because of age, but it's the same disease. They do the same behaviors, lose the same abilities. So being supported in a support group of a wide variety of people was very, very, very helpful. Yeah. And I didn't mean to suggest that you said that I'm, I'm <laughs> responding to the question too, because I think, you know, we are getting to a place where we're getting more open about these things, right? And so if you've never been to a support group, you might think it's supposed to be a certain way. And I'm just sharing that, wow, you know, you encountered a support group that was very loving and kind to you and helped you, even though your situation was in many ways very different. But um, look what it gave you. It gave you a lot of support. So yeah, that's wonderful. And it, it, it did take me a long time to go. And I really don't know what that was about. I mean, mm. I was yeah. about two, three years in. I don't, I still don't know what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> it's just about the process, right? I mean, <laughs> um, so I want to open it up for questions. We've got a few more minutes. I don't, we, I, Please, let's, if you've got something, let's um, jump in there. You can turn your camera on if you like. You can put it in the chat. I'll be happy to read it for you. Um, and while we're kind of wrapping up, I guess if there are any other announcements or um, you want to share. Do you have any, do you have any speaking engagements coming up, Dr. Rene? I'm speaking for the Alzheimer's Association in early, early August. That's my Fantastic. Name. That's great. And is that a live? Or are you doing a video live now? Yeah, we're finally live. So that's Fantastic. nice. So what was the web address for the stages? Okay. Mm -hmm. A L Z I N F O. Let me put it in the chat. Uh, a L Z I N F O Al's info dot com dot dot com or probably dot org one or the other dot com or I'll just org. say or dot org 
Yeah, so it's one of those. Excellent. And then I'll also put in the chat Al's authors authors.com and that's a great um, place for books um, and other resources okay is there anything else that you'd like to share with us dr Ru or dr renee before we leave i'm <laughs> no, seeing ruth's so. name and we just interviewed <laughs> her so then i'm like oh doctor dr, dr. Ruth. ruth no no Ooh, dr. Renee. <laughs> sorry no, ruth i just i just elevated you to to an md ruth um but <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Renee. No, I think I think we've done a really good job of covering what yeah. I think is important to yeah. to share. So thank you. Well, thank you. It was a lovely book, and I just so appreciate you sharing so much. And it, and it, I am so admiring of how you you know really made yourself vulnerable to share all of this with us because you it was really great and it was painful and and then there was humor in there too. And I appreciate that you could see that and and even share that with us so it was it was wonderful so thank you thank okay you. all right everybody um amanda anything from hfc oh just thank you so much renee for joining us and um as you all probably know we're so big on storytelling and that's what created the foundation of our organization so we are so appreciative to have the partner and all the authors that we do and Renee I know for anyone it's not easy to share your story like you mentioned even if it was just those last two years that you had to go back through but there's so much power in sharing those stories and um just a plug for you to see we've got support groups too for all ages uh Lauren Miller Rogan our founder she similar to your daughters but she's a little bit older was um pretty young when her mother was diagnosed with early onset. I think she was in her early twenties and she found the same thing, just like a lack of resources for support for people who are like her. Um, so feel free to check out, um, we are hfc.org. Um, you can find more resources following us on social media too, but I just wanted to say thank you so much. And Chrissy, you've been, you continue to be a lovely, um, question asker and conversation starter. So this has been great. <laughs> I always have questions. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. I'm glad that we had some good participation and I appreciate it. And Dr. Renee, thank you so much. Really, really have enjoyed getting to know you and really, really enjoyed the book. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, an Alz Authors podcast. For more details on this episode, please see the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to it on whichever platform you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on Alz Authors, please visit allsauthors.com. While you're there, be sure to browse our online bookstore, where you will find hundreds of carefully vetted books on Alzheimer's and dementia. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Please email your thoughts on the podcast to allsauthors at gmail.com. We are a 501c3 charitable organization, totally reliant on donations to do what we do. If our author's stories move you, please consider contributing to our cause. Remember, you are not alone. One can sing a lonely song, but we chose to form a choir and create harmony.